On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiving them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord, my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Stephanie. Well, before we come to this passage, nearing, almost nearing the end now uh, in our study in the Gospel of John, uh, let's bow our heads and pray one more time. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have given us this day uh, and that you have set it apart and then commanded us to set it apart um, as a day of rest, uh, as a day uh, right here at the beginning of our week to rest in you, uh, to set aside our work and to do um, really just to listen, just to hear your word and to hear uh, what you would say to us. Father, the idea of uh, putting rest at the beginning of our week uh, runs counter uh, to so many of our, of our intuitions. If we, if we really stop and think hard about what we're doing here, um, I'd probably be a little offended um, that you would tell us that the first thing that we need to do each week is not uh, to plan, uh, not to strategize, not to think about how we're going to provide for ourselves or for our neighbor, um, either of these, but, but simply to rest, uh, to come into your presence uh, and to feast on what you have done and on what you have given, to listen to your word, uh, to come to your table, uh, to be nourished, to be built up um, for your service. Um, Father, just to marvel uh, at, at who you are. Um, Father, you have, you have given us your word in, in so many different forms uh, here in this service, in the words of the liturgy, uh, in the words that we have read, uh, in our prayers, in the words that we have sung uh, as we have lifted up 
praises uh, to you, as we have confessed sins to you and heard of, of your forgiveness for us, as, as we have reminded ourselves of your goodness and your generosity to us and offered back uh, a small portion of, of what you've given to us. Um, Father, your word comes to us from, from the outside. Um, it, is, it is not a word that we would or could have made up. Uh, it, it challenges us. It convicts us. Um, it encourages us in ways that we wouldn't have known how to ask for. Uh, it gives us uh, the totally uh, unexpected and unlooked-for hope of the resurrection. Uh, we are here to celebrate that uh, every Sunday, but, but particularly here in, in these weeks um, following Easter Sunday. Uh, we, are, we are grateful uh, to be brought into your presence and to celebrate the hope of the resurrection and to consider what, what impact it has uh, in our lives and in the life of the world. Um, Father, it makes of the world a very different thing um, than we typically think of it. The idea that death doesn't have the last say um, really changes everything. And so I pray that, that we would be changed uh, by this word. Uh, I pray, Father, uh, that you would be faithful to your promise that your word, uh, as it goes out from you, would not return to you without accomplishing its purposes but would have its way with us, would, would make us more like Jesus uh, in our love for you and in our love uh, for our neighbor. Again, thank you that the first thing that you call us to do each week is to rest, uh, to listen, and to hear. Uh, and so we pray that we would be able to do that uh, faithfully in these, in these next minutes. And I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So one of the really fun things uh, for me, I mentioned this, this last week about um, going through the, the Gospel of John verse by verse, you know, over the course of these last three winter-spring um, periods leading up to, leading up to Easter uh, for each of the last three years, um, is just seeing how John arranges uh, his, his story, how he arranges the gospel in order to emphasize certain things. Um, it's one of the beautiful things about the Bible that we have four gospels, right? That we have accounts from Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, and John. Um, and, and sometimes it can be a little confusing. Why are they, why are they different uh, from each other? Why are some of the, the details different? Why are things moved around a little, a little bit? Um, it's actually one of the indications that we, can, that we can take them as trustworthy, as being actual eyewitness accounts. Um, if, if these were things that had been written, you know, many, many years later uh, in order to serve, you know, a particular agenda, you kind of would have expected them to get together and get their story a little straighter, right, and coordinate with each other. On the other hand, if you had four people writing down an account of what they had seen and doing so pretty soon after they had seen it, like within the first generation, um, you would expect a few differences because people tell stories in different ways and they emphasize different things. Um, I think one of the things that we're seeing as we, as we get uh, to the end of, of this gospel um, is that in John, the resurrection is the ground of the church. 
because John has chosen to put some things here at the end of his story uh, after the resurrection that are really central to our understanding of what the church is, of, of who it is. Um, a lot of commentators look at, at this passage and say this is basically John's version of the Great Commission, right, where Jesus sends out his church. But not only the Great Commission, where Jesus sends his church, um, but also what's sometimes referred to as the Great Constitution. The Great Constitution, so that's a less familiar term, so let me tell you what that means. The Great Constitution um, is where Jesus gives the church the authority to carry on the mission that he has begun. All right, he, he, he empowers the church to open wide the gates of heaven, to proclaim the forgiveness of sins, right, to do the thing that we gather together every week uh, to do. And John has decided to put both of those things right next to each other um, after the resurrection, you know, as though to say it's, it, it's only in light of the resurrection. It's only in light of the fact that death has been defeated, right, and sin has been defeated, and the work is finished, um, that now the church can be sent out and can carry on uh, this, this mission uh, right here. So let's, let's, let's take a look at this. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so we're, we're still on Easter Sunday, right? So, so far we've seen uh, Mary and then the disciples come to the empty tomb, and then last week, we saw Mary actually look into the empty tomb and then encounter the resurrected Jesus. She was the first one to actually see him alive uh, in John's gospel. And now, for the first time, um, evening of that day, Jesus has made his disciples wait like a whole nother day um, before they're finally going to see him. It says, on the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. I want to stop there. The first thing that he says to his disciples is peace. Um, I don't think we can overemphasize this. The first thing that the resurrected Lord says to his disciples is, peace be with you. Um, because this is what he has done. He has established peace. Before he had said, peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give you, but but now he can say, on the ground of what I have accomplished, on the ground of this finished work, I can offer you peace. When Jesus on the cross says it is finished, right? it's, it's, it's worth us always asking, wait, what? what? What is finished? What is it that he is finishing there? What work is done? Um, because after all, here in this passage, as he sends the church out, there's an indication for the fact that the church is being sent out, that there is still work of a kind to be done, right? There is still gospel proclamation that, that needs to take place. But on the cross, Jesus said something was finished. There was a kind of work that was absolutely done. And what that was, was that the work of paying for sin is done, right? Whatever else the church is sent out to do, whatever whatever um, it is that we're uh, exhorted to do uh, in our lives, um, we are not exhorted to pay the penalty for our sins. That is not a thing that we can do. Um, God's merit, his favor, his love, his grace, his grace by definition, is not a thing that we can earn, right? Um, and so Jesus can walk in, and the first thing he can say is, 
peace. Paul loved to repeat this, right? In Romans 5, he starts off Romans 5 saying, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Colossians 1.20, he's even more explicit about the cross. He says, um, he says, Jesus has made peace by the blood of, of his cross. So that's the first thing that Jesus has to say to his disciples the first time that he sees them after the resurrection. Now there's peace. Now, we're told that the doors were locked, right? Um, and suddenly he's, he's standing among them. Now, John isn't real explicit about, like, did Jesus just walk through a wall? Like, how, how, did, how did he get into this room? Um, it's possible. Um, he, he is now raised from the dead. Um, having died and been raised from the dead, he will never taste death again. He is in his glorified, resurrected body. Um, but notice, whether, whether that body is a body that can go through walls or not, notice that after he says peace, the first thing he does is show them his hands and his side. So whatever has changed about his body, there's one thing that hasn't, um, and that is that the scars are still there. Um, Theologians love to wrestle with this one. Um, what on earth does that mean? Uh, and the answer is, I don't know. Um, we're told that, that in, in the resurrection there will be no disease, there will be no pain, right? Every tear will be wiped away. You would think the scars would be gone. Um, it could simply be the case that these scars, that these scars are so glorious um, that they need to be shown, that they need to be seen. Um, and as we'll see at the end of this passage, uh, there's one disciple in particular that really needs to see um, that Jesus' body is the same one uh, in, which, in which he was crucified. Uh, and so these scars uh, are, are, are still there. Now, it's at this point that Jesus, in just a couple sentences, sends the church out and gives them the authority to carry on his mission, right? Here's what he says. Jesus said to them again, I'm at verse 21 here. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you would withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So Jesus is, is, on the one hand, repeating something that he said in his high priestly prayer. He had already said, just as you've sent me, so I'm sending them. And now he repeats that to his disciples. Just as I have been sent, I am sending you um, out. Which tells us something important about the mission of the church. Um, that whatever else the mission of the church may be, it can't be divorced from Jesus' mission. Right? The mission of the church, as we are sent out to be a blessing to the nations, as we talked about all during last summer, um, can't be divorced from Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission was to bring peace. The work that he did on the cross is one of a kind, right? He alone was the perfect sacrifice. He alone was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? The church does not 
occupy that role. But the mission of the church has to be continuous with that work. In other words, the most important thing that the church can do is to proclaim peace, is to proclaim that because of Jesus, there can be peace between God and man. Now, the fact of the matter is that when you think about what sin does, the kind of peace that it undoes, right, the kind of uh, violence and conflict that it, that it creates, sin breaks everything, right? So sin breaks the relationship between God and man. Sin also breaks the relationship between me and you, right? That's why in our... In our um, uh, after we hear the absolution of sins, the first thing we do is we turn to each other and we say, peace with you. Because the same uh, moment in which we hear forgiveness of our sins and hear that we have peace with God, that extends to peace that we have with each other. Sin has also broken our relationship to the whole rest of creation. Sin has broken our relationship with ourselves, right? All of the brokenness that we suffer, um, everything you can think of, it's not the way it's supposed to be in this world. Uh, all of that brokenness is the result of sin. It is good for God's people to be involved uh, and, to, and, to, and to work and to put effort um, into restoring any of those relationships. But, but at root, at the root of, of the church doing that work and equipping you guys, equipping all of us to do that work in the world, has to be this core element that Jesus has made peace between God and man by the blood of his cross. That, that has to stay central, right? If we move that off of the center, then we start trying to do things in the world by our own energy that we can't do, that we don't have the energy to do. Jesus sends the church out, just as he was sent, he sends us out with a mission that's continuous um, with, with his. And then, right in this, in this same passage, he's actually very specific uh, and very active in providing uh, the energy. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, that, that immediately has to remind you of creation, right? If, if you know the creation story back in Genesis 2, it says God formed the man out of the dust and then he breathed into him and he became a living being, right? And, and so it's, it's not wrong to see this as kind of a new creation moment, right? As Jesus breathes on his, on his disciples. Uh, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit, and then he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So why would it be that Jesus giving the Holy Spirit and sending his church out with this mission, why, why is that connected to the forgiveness of sins? Because let's be clear, Jesus is not saying, I'm giving you the independent power to decide who's forgiven and who's not. Right? Jesus has been clear elsewhere in the gospel, only God can forgive sins. But the center of the, of the mission of the church is to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. As Jesus gives the Holy Spirit 
and sends his church out on this mission that's continuous with his. He's saying this is precisely how the gates of heaven are going to be opened. This is, this is how forgiveness is going to be proclaimed. This is how sinners are, are going to hear about what I have done and, and be offered um, this, this repentance under the forgiveness of their sins. I think what we've got here, even though John didn't write the book of Acts, um, this really feels like the prelude to the book of Acts, right? When we, when we preached through Acts uh, a, few, a few years ago, um, I know uh, Bradley and others that, that preached would often say that you could, you could rename the book of the Acts rather than just simply being the Acts of the Apostles. It might be better to think of it as the continuing Acts of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, right? Just work, work all of that, that into that. Um, and that, and that seems to be precisely what's going on here. Um, that Jesus, in breathing on his disciples and giving them his spirit and sending him out on this mission, is empowering exactly what's going to happen in the book of Acts. As the gospel is proclaimed, as peace is proclaimed, as the way is opened for sinners to repent and to find salvation in, in, in this one. I think this is... All of this is, is important, this matters, for a few different reasons. Um, one is that when we think about the work of the church and what it is that we're called to do, um, the word is, is central. Um, with uh, Boston Fellows, this, this, this program that I, that I help out with, um, we just got done reading an excerpt from Tim Keller's book, which is called Preaching. Um, Keller, by his own admission, didn't like the title of that book because he thought, you know, that, that makes it sound like it's a book only for preachers. And what he really wanted it to be about was the ministry of the Word, about the way, the way that the Word uh, works uh, in the life of the church um, and as the members of the church proclaim the, world, uh, the Word to the world, right? Um, my guess is that the publisher thought that a book called The Ministry of the Word by Tim Keller just wouldn't sell as many copies as Preaching by Tim Keller. Everybody wants to read that. Um, but, but he really wrote the book in such a way as to, as to be for everybody, uh, for everybody to understand um, that God's word is, is the primary means by which he works. Um, it's also important for us to know, um, again, that forgiveness, forgiveness of sins, um, is not something that the disciples uh, independently give, you know, as though, as though they had independently autonomous authority uh, to forgive sins. Um, but it is something that they proclaim. Um, and that's a pretty wild thing when you think about it, especially when you think about the continuation of that ministry in the church today. Um, the idea that um, here in this church, um, as the word is preached, um, as the table uh, is, is opened, and, and, as, and as forgiven sinners are invited to come, um, that every time that's happening, 
the forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed and offered again and again and again. That's an amazing thing, especially when you stop and you think about who we are, uh, of how much in need of that very forgiveness all of us remain, that Jesus would choose to proclaim the message of forgiveness through people that need it. I actually think it makes perfect sense when you think about it, simply because who better to proclaim the message of forgiveness than those who know that they need it? Um, when is it more powerful to talk to somebody about the offer of repentance, the offer of forgiveness from this God than when you have just repented of your own sin, when you have just been reminded that you've been forgiven? But that's one of the things that we're seeing on display here. And, and we're, and we're going to keep seeing that, by the way, in the rest of this gospel. There's, there's a reason that we've got Thomas attached uh, to this passage uh, right away. We're going to come to that in, in, in just a minute. Um, the last reason, though, that I think that it's really important what Jesus does here um, as he breathes on his disciples, his, as he gives him the Spirit, is a reminder that as we go out into the world, as we proclaim the forgiveness of sins, as we proclaim this message of peace, we're not doing it alone, right? All of the same encouragement that, that, that Jesus gave his disciples um, before uh, he was crucified uh, still applies. All of that same encouragement about how he was going to send the Spirit, and the Spirit would remind them of everything that he taught them. Uh, and the Spirit uh, would work to glorify Jesus as Jesus points to the Father, Right? Because in the end, at the end of the day, it's all about knowing the Father, knowing him and knowing Jesus whom he sent. That's eternal life, according to Jesus. So the fact that the Spirit has been given, that we are not doing this alone. Now, what does this mean for you? What does this mean for, for us? And, and, and in particular, what does it mean for us? Um, when we're struggling? What, is it, what does it mean for us uh, in those times where we're less than sure and we're experiencing doubt? As I, as I said, uh, there's a reason that Thomas is attached uh, to this passage. Um, I think this is, we're seeing again um, how John is, is, is constructing uh, something very carefully in telling this, this narrative uh, the, way that it, the way that it happened. Because um, I think what we're seeing in Thomas is that doubts and struggles belong in the church. That the church is a good place in which to have doubts and to wrestle with them uh, and, and, and to bring them. Um, a lot of us know this story is the story of doubting Thomas, right? Like that's that's... When you think of Thomas, you almost always put that word on, on, on the front of his name, Doubting Thomas. That's who he is. Um, that's kind of unfortunate um, for a couple of reasons. On the one hand, this, this confession that he ends up making uh, at the end of, his, of this passage, where he says, my Lord and my God, he's, he's the first one after the resurrection to make that double confession, that Jesus is Lord and God. So in some ways, he really should be better known for his faith. Uh, then for his doubt. The other reason it's unfortunate is you have to think any of the disciples would have struggled. Like if any of them hadn't been there, 
uh, that first time that Jesus showed up and, and then had been told that Jesus was alive, probably any of them would have struggled uh, to believe that. So we probably don't want to be too hard uh, on, on Thomas. Um, again, the doors are locked. So now we're at the end of the passage here. This time Thomas uh, is, is there with him. Again, the doors are locked. Again, Jesus stands among them. Again, the first thing he says is, peace be with you. Um, really wants to get this message uh, across. And he goes straight to Thomas, who has said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and put my finger into that mark and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. And he goes straight to Thomas and says, here. Here are my hands. Here, here's my side. Go ahead. Um, there's no rebuke. There's no chiding. Um, he graciously gives Thomas what he asks for. He goes to the one who is doubting, and he invites him to come closer. He invites him to come nearer. He invites him into ever greater intimacy with him. That's what Jesus does with doubt. He says, come, put your hands in. Um, it reminds you of the psalm that says, taste and see, right? Come as near as you possibly can. Come see that I really am here. We're not even told that Thomas actually does touch him. We're just told that he exclaims, my Lord and my God. And, and as I said before, it's amazing this double confession that he makes Maybe more amazing and more notable um, are the, the, the possessive pronouns there. My Lord, my God, is the one standing in front of me here. Um, I know that the team that went down to the DR spent a lot of time uh, looking at Galatians 2.20, right? Many of us have, have memorized this verse. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And, and we bring this up often, but it, it, it bears repeating. In Martin Luther's commentary on that, on that passage, he says, you got to put those words me in big, bold, capital letters, right? Um, this is not just Jesus who died for the sins of the world. This is Jesus who died for me, who gave himself for me, who knew all of my sins, the ones that I have committed and the ones that I will commit. He knew it all, and he died for those. So that with Thomas, we can say, my Lord, my God. I put a sonnet on the front of the, of the bulletin. Um, I've been, I've been reading this book of sonnets uh, by a British poet named Malcolm Geith. He's got a whole bunch of sonnets to go with the, whole, with the whole Christian year. And this is the one that he wrote for Thomas. Um, and I think he's just put his finger on it perfectly. Let me just read this. The beginning of it, by the way, makes allusion to the fact that if you remember back when, back when Jesus... Um, was talking about going and, and them knowing the way. Thomas was the one that spoke up and said, we don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. And Jesus said, I am the way, 
the truth and the life. But Thomas was the one that spoke up at that moment. So Geit writes, We do not know. How can we know the way? Courageous master of the awkward question. You spoke the words the others dared not say and cut through their evasion and abstraction. O doubting Thomas, father of my faith, you put your finger on the nub of things. We cannot love some disembodied wraith, but flesh and blood must be our king of kings. Your teaching is to touch, embrace, anoint, feel after him, and find him in the flesh. Because he loved your awkward counterpoint, the word has heard and granted you your wish. O place my hands with yours. Help me divine, the wounded God whose wounds are healing mine. Here's the question that I want to close with. What do you do with your doubts? Um, the question is not, do you have doubt? Um, we all do. Uh, hope in the resurrection is hope for the unexpected, unasked for, unbelievable. Um, if you have not wrestled with doubt, you, you, you probably have not wrestled with Jesus yet. What do you do with your doubts? What do you do with your questions? And there's really only one of two answers to that question. Your doubt can either drive you away from Jesus or it can drive you towards him. Do you know how to come to Jesus with your doubts, with your questions? I love this line in that sonnet. Your teaching is to touch, embrace, anoint, feel after him and find him in the flesh. I am so thankful that John put this story of Thomas right after the story in which Jesus sends out his church because it reminds us that the church that Jesus sent out into the world is not a church full of people who are stalwart in their faith, who never have any questions, who never struggle with anything. It is a church full of doubting Thomases. It is a church full of people who not only have a mission to proclaim peace and proclaim the forgiveness of sins, but who also need to turn back themselves, who also need to keep repenting and keep being reminded that Jesus died for me, and he died for you. He gave himself for me, and he gave himself for you. We often say that this table is our first act of repentance, that after hearing God's word proclaimed, the first thing that we get to do is to come to this table uh, and to be fed, to find him in the flesh, to find him in the bread and the wine, his body and his blood given for us. Let's pray before we come.